Good morning and welcome to Moment of Truth. On the line with us this morning, we have Jeremy Bouchard. He is a partner and class counsel with Gowling WLG in Ottawa. And uh, Jeremy is on the phone to speak with us today about uh, the Indian Day School settlement and uh, the class action that was brought forward. And uh, Jeremy, welcome to the show. Good morning, David, and, and thank you very much for uh, inviting me to speak today about the day school class action. Uh, really happy to have this opportunity to speak with you and uh, share some information with your listeners. Well, we appreciate you doing so. I want to just start with uh, perhaps, I think you, you want to mention uh, Gary Leslie McLean, who, uh, who actually started this class action lawsuit, I believe, back in 2009. That's correct. And it was unfortunate that we, we just lost him this year, I believe. Yes. Um, you know, we really wanted to, uh, you know, it's uh, important that we pay tribute to Gary McLean. He was a, a wonderful person. He was a day school survivor. Uh, he was a champion uh, back in 2009. Uh, him and another, uh, him and a number of his friends got together and talked about this. And, you know, it's at that point that, you know, they realized that what happened to them at day schools and many others wasn't right. And he had the courage uh, to start this action. And unfortunately, we lost him just recently, uh, you know, and, and we just wanted to send our prayers to him and his family. Uh, we are certainly honored to carry on his legacy and we look forward to doing so. Mm. So then let's uh, try and, and move this forward and, and give uh, people some information about this. What can you tell us at this point about this uh, day school class action lawsuit, where, where, it's, where it's come from and where it is now? Um, what I would say is that the class action, as mentioned, started out in 2009. Um, and we, uh, and when I say we, uh, I mean Gowling WLG, uh, our our firm, our team, uh, really came on board in 2016. Um, and at that point there, we really moved forward aggressively to move this to settlement. Uh, we have, uh, and, and a key piece of this was, what we wanted to do was get out to communities and talk to communities to see what how they wanted this to, to unfold and to learn from experience, their experience through the Indian residential school system process, settlement process, um, just what some of the challenges were and what were their frustrations. And so since 2016, we've moved forward. We've, uh, we've had a number of community information sessions where we go out to communities. And, and Gary used to uh, accompany us and we would talk to leadership, we would talk to survivors, we'd talk to elders, and we would hear their concerns, we'd hear what their story was. And it was from that that we really developed and put together what the settlement would look like. There were a number of principles and concerns that came out of that. And so uh, back on June 21st uh, in 2018, uh, we had this certified, and since then, We've, uh, we've moved to have a settlement agreement uh, put in place. We now are at the point where on May 13th, 14th, and 15th, we have settlement approval uh, hearings scheduled in Winnipeg, Manitoba, 
to approve the settlement that we've managed to negotiate with the government of Canada. And so that's really where we're at now. That's the history of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, it, it does have a rich history. Um, we are at the stage now uh, where 60 days before the settlement hearing, uh, notice goes out of the settlement agreement. Uh, the approval hearing has been scheduled. And it's a very important time for discussion about the terms of the settlement. Uh, a number of questions have been raised over uh, the past few weeks, and that's exactly how this process is supposed to work. Um, we, we, we really look forward to responding to those questions and talking to everyone about their concerns. Um, but we also recognize that people also have the right to have clear and factual information. And so that's what we're trying to do at this stage. And uh, people can find that information on your website, I believe. Yes, we have a, a website, a ded- dedicated uh, website that provides all that information. Um, we have uh, a Facebook presence as well. Uh, we have a call center here, uh, a 1-800 number where people are invited to call that number. It's fully staffed and resourced where people can ask questions. Uh, they can ask any question they'd like, and we have people available uh, to to answer and respond those questions. Um, likewise, uh, people are able to contact myself and other uh, lead counsel as well. So uh, I see the uh, the IndianDaysSchool.com site here. Um, I'm yes. just looking for the 1-800 number. I'm, I don't see that. Do you have to ha- happen to have that handy? Sure. Our toll-free number is one 539 3815. Okay, great. So that's 1-844-539-3815 for people that want to call and inquire, uh, have questions. That's correct. Now, the other thing I understand is that um, one of the, the things that you, you learned from the process of, of the residential school settlement it was that people didn't want to be re- re-traumatized. And so that that, that, that has been uh, rolled into this, is that correct? So that people won't be uh, asked questions and, and sort of put over the grill about, about their experiences. That's correct. One of the principal concerns we had that were expressed by community members across Canada uh, was the issue of re-traumatization through a process. And so when we traveled the country and spoke to leaders and community members, a lot of them uh, talked about and were critical of the independent assessment process that was part of the Indian Residential Schools uh, settlement process. And what they found hard was the time it took to go through that process, the legal complexities of the process, but really importantly, the cross-examinations. Uh, that was really hard and traumatic for people to go through, particularly considering a lot of people were older, elderly, and they had to recount these painful memories. And that's what our process is designed to avoid. Our process is specifically designed to avoid the lengthy and often re-traumatizing legal process of evidence collection, cross-examination, and a confrontational hearing process. Uh, Instead, our process, the Indian Day School Claims Process, is designed to be simple, culturally sensitive, non-adversarial, and user-friendly. It's paper-based, 
And so there are minimal verification requirements and the documentation people may be asked to provide, for example, photos, personal correspondence, won't require a difficult process or third party to obtain. Well, that certainly sounds like it will make it easier for, for people that, uh, that want to apply. I'd like to ask you, is there, what have you learned from this process yourself? What, what have you taken away from this? What I've, uh, there's, that's, a, that's a really good question. I've learned a lot. I mean, I think I've learned a lot about the history of our people. And when I mean our people, I mean Indigenous from coast to coast to coast. There's a, is a Mohawk who grew up on Six Nations of the Grand River who knows community members who attended some of these schools. I think what I learned the most was the intergenerational impact of this, how, just how much Indigenous people have suffered at these institutions and how it impacts future generations. But just, you know, just how many people were impacted at a day school is, to me, a very eye-opening experience. We've, we've as I mentioned, we've gone to communities throughout Canada, and it always uh, amazes me that you hear the same story of abuse and mistreatment out east is in the west. Uh, when you're out west, you'll hear very similar accounts of the type of experience that's at a Indian day school or a federal day school, it's it's remarkable the, the degree of harm that people have suffered, but they've carried on and they've made it through. And so that to me has been a real eye opener. Is is just the level of harm, uh, but um, you know, and the consistency across Canada in these institutions. How then do you feel when you have learned all this information? And you, you, you see this and you, you hear these comments. I think this has provided, I think this provides an opportunity for some measure of justice. Uh, and it provides an opportunity for healing. This settlement agreement provides for individual compensation uh, for individuals who attended schools. And I know that doesn't heal everything, but we also have other elements to it which is the legacy funding piece, which is intended to provide healing, uh, language and cultural revitalization initiatives, uh, and community commemorative events. And I think those are all key. You know, we've gone out and we've spoken to people, and people are are happy with this settlement agreement. And so, to me, that, that makes me feel good that people are optimistic. Uh, they're looking forward to this settlement. So you you mentioned a, a little bit about the settlement in terms of, of what people can expect, but can we break that down a little bit more? For instance, uh, an individual and what they might be able to, uh, you know, look at, at possibly receiving, and then also how that breaks down. You know, it's one thing to attend, it's another if there was any kind of abuse that took place, yes? So I can certainly break that down. What I can say is that, when we first took this case on, uh, what we found in speaking to people is it is everyone seems to have suffered some degree of harm uh, by attending these schools. Just the experience alone being there, uh, either being subject to abuse or seeing that abuse had an impact on people. And so for us, we always took the view that attendance at these schools uh, meant that you would have suffered or been exposed to some degree of harm. 
So that's why when we have the level one, which is 10,000 in compensation, uh, the criteria for that, we, we believe most people will, set, will qualify for that. And then from there, we have a series of progressive steps or levels to level five, which is ultimately uh, $200,000 in compensation. And, if, and that's really for those individuals who suffered significant abuse, uh, including sexual abuse. So there is a harms level, and it's progressive in nature in terms of level one through through five. Our view is that most eligible individuals who attended uh, will likely meet that threshold for level one. And so from there is the experience changes for others. Uh, they're able to look at progressively the types of harms they've suffered, physical, uh, sexual, etc., and place themselves within there. And, and that's how the compensation is determined. Right. Okay. And uh, you, you mentioned a little bit about what the legacy can do. Uh, do you want to expand on that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. So the legacy piece, what, what we did there was we were able to secure a commitment by Canada to uh, make funding available in the amount of $200 million to go into a legacy fund. It'll be overseen by a not-for-profit corporation, and these funds will be made available to fund certain projects. So, for example, one of the key ones, of course, is healing. And so there is a commitment that a portion of those funds will be put aside for healing initiatives where communities and community-based organizations across Canada will be able to apply for funding to engage in community-driven healing initiatives and programs. The second component will be language and culture. Across Canada, uh, Gary McLean talked about how the first day he went to school, he didn't speak English. Uh, He only spoke Soto. And his first experience that he recalled was within the first few minutes, he was being punished for speaking his indigenous language because he didn't know English. And so a lot of people have, have talked about and have shared with us their stories of the impact on language and culture. And so that's why we wanted to have something available there to be used to fund language and cultural revitalization initiatives. And so, again, a portion of this legacy funding will go towards that. Mm. Thirdly, the importance at communities with respect to the impact this had on communities and bringing communities together, we've gone to communities where we've talked about the, the, the impact of the day school and community members begin to talk amongst themselves and they share stories. And, and there's, you can see how people have talked about this for the first time and the impact it has on them. And it's, in some cases, it's brought the community together and they've begun to talk together and talk about their experiences and help each other move forward. So we wanted to make some measure of funding available for each community to have some sort of commemorative event in their community, whether it's a ceremony, a feast, or however they want to commemorate this this event. And then lastly, the truth-telling form. I mentioned this earlier just briefly, but what we'd like to do is have some funding available for a form, a body that goes nationally and regionally uh, across Canada to have a day 
or, or two where people are invited to come and attend and share their stories. We know this is important for some people for the healing process, to be able to tell their story, have it acknowledged and heard. And so that's what is also part of this truth-telling form, is the ability to bring people to their story to talk. And it has a, a public educational aspect to it, too, so that people who don't know what happened in Indian day schools or federal day schools will get to learn and hear about those stories. Well, that sounds uh, very encouraging. Um, I'm just wondering if there's, uh, well, you mentioned a not-for-profit organization that will be overseeing this legacy fund. Do we know what organization that is? Or Well, that's, a, that's actually a great question, and I'm glad you raised that. Um, this was something that Gary McLean was very proud of. Uh, when we first told him about this, he actually, you know, he broke down and he was so happy. And so this corporation will bear his name, mm. uh, the McLean uh, Day School Settlement Corporation, and so that's going to be the name of it to honor his legacy. Mm. Great. Um, I'm wondering now, as you look forward, what do you hope for this? What do you anticipate? What uh, would you like people to know? Um, I, I mean, I think there's a lot. I think one of the key things I want people to know is I want people, well, not me, but we is a firm and is is the uh, representative plaintiffs, we want people to understand that there's a lot of information available and that needs to be digested. And we understand that people are going to raise concerns uh, about the settlement and that this is very important for survivors. It's This settlement acknowledges survivors' experiences and the legacy of harms. And so we want to do that in a respectful way. And we also want to make sure that people have clear and correct information. They know their rights. That's really important at this stage. Uh, we believe this settlement is going to benefit a large class, and we're, we're really happy to see that. So, you know, we just we know that we're running out of time. We're losing over 2,000 survivors each year. And so that's why we've designed this process the way it is. Uh, we've listened to the people and we just really want to continue to share that information and invite people to contact us where they have questions or concerns. Mm. Uh, well, in terms of that, that time element that you mentioned, what kind of time do you think it will be for people to, once they apply, to receive compensation? What I do know is that every aspect of this process has been designed to be efficient uh, and timely and every aspect of it was designed to avoid some of the challenges that were encountered in the Indian uh, residential school settlement agreement process. Mm. And that includes the timing of receipt of compensation. So at this point, I I can't give you a a clear answer on that, but I know that we've designed it to be efficient and timely. We're we're in an interesting time right now. We're we're at the, the public notice uh, we're approaching settlement hearing date, um, and I just, you know what, I, I want to encourage people to to make sure that if they have questions um, that they are concerns, we want to hear them. Uh, and you can call us, you can visit the website at indiandayschools.com. This process was intended to be user-friendly, and it's inclusive. I mean, I think that's one of the key things I wanted to emphasize as well is that this settlement includes all individuals who attended a federal Indian day school. 
So that includes First Nations, Inuit, and Métis. It's important for people to understand also that the baseline harm for clients is such that nearly everyone who is eligible for this settlement uh, will be eligible for at least the level one compensation payment. Okay. Uh, well, Jeremy, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We appreciate not only your time, but the information that you brought forward and uh, in, in helping with this class action lawsuit and your, your firm in doing so. Great. Thank you so much as well. And that was Jeremy Bouchard. He is a partner at Gowling WLG in Ottawa, Ontario, on the phone from us there. He is a partner and class counsel. And the number to reach if you are trying to get more information on the Indian Day School Class Action, you can call 1-844-539-3815. That's 1-844-539-3815. You can also go to their uh, website at indiandayschools.com. This is Moment of Truth, and I'm your host, David Moses. And welcome back to Moment of Truth. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. I'm your host, David Moses. And in Toronto, you are listening at 106.5, and in Ottawa at 95.7 FM. The second part of our show here today, we have Vanessa Dillon, and she is the owner of Matter of Fact Media, Inc., and that is based in Toronto, Canada. And she's a successful Emmy-nominated and Canadian Screen Award-winning producer of high-concept domestic and international factual programming. So let's stop right there. Okay, Vanessa, please explain high-concept domestic and international factual programming, please. (laughs) (laughs) Well, David, that's quite an intro. Uh, You've got me there. Uh, I I try to make high-quality films that that have some Canadian content, but that will sell internationally Mm. in the larger markets. Okay. And you certainly have a number of interesting uh, projects under your belt, I must say. Uh, Certainly uh, this this one here, the documentary that Inferno, uh, that sounds quite interesting about someone's relationship with volcanoes. That's quite an unusual sort of... (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. Uh, That one, uh, that was actually a film directed by um, a master filmmaker, Werner Herzog, Mm. And a British company called Spring Films uh, had done another project with them, and they were pretty happy with my work. So, and they invited to me, they invited me to be their Canadian partner to help raise some financing. Mm. So, I went to CBC's uh, documentary channel. I got them interested in the project, and then uh, we developed the film with the, with the uh, British partners, uh, overseen by by Werner, of course. And so, our contribution was writing the treatment for the film and shooting the trailer elements that would hopefully get us mm. more financing in, in the international markets. Okay, understood. And that was for Netflix, Undercover. Jihadi, is that how you say that? Yes, Undercover Jihadi was the story of the undercover RCMP operative, Mubin Sheikh, who was responsible for infiltrating a group called the Toronto 18 around 2004, 2005. Mm. And he prevented one of the, potentially one of the worst tragedies, one of the worst terrorism plots, Mm. certainly in our history. Well, you have no shortage of interesting projects, and uh, the one we're here to talk mostly about today is this one that's uh, going to be having its uh, its Canadian debut in the next few days, 
The Divided Brain. That's for CBC's documentary channel. That's correct. And that's uh, coming up, I believe, on the 6th. Is that correct? It's, on... it's Tuesday, April the 9th, 9th at the Isabel Bader Theater. That's right. Uh, so it is the 9th at 7 p.m. at Isabel Bader Theater. And there's, we're going to talk about the panel that will be there after, which you will be taking part of as well. But the movie itself, which is a documentary, and it is based on a two-hour film with renowned psychiatrist Dr. Ian McGilchrist. And he's the author of Master and the, His Emissary. Yes. The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain, yeah. and The Making of the Western World. Mm. That's the title of the book, and it's about 800 pages, and it is a brain buster. <laughs> and uh, I became aware of the book because I had been in the uh, brain space for a number of years. I had made a number of other um, brain-based films, which actually were quite popular and so I started hearing about this book. So I, I read it, and I was about a third of the way through, and I thought, this is a revelation. People need to know about this. This is, um, it was based on Ian McGilchrist's thesis or idea that the left and the right hemispheres of the brain were becoming unbalanced. And over a number of centuries, the left hemisphere was gaining dominance over the right hemisphere. And the question the film asks, and what Ian was asking is, is this imbalance in our brains causing us to deal badly with some of the societal problems in our world? such as the economic crash or, the, or our environmental problems, the rise of mental illness. And he really focuses on the Western world and on the history of the Western world. So I thought, this is a very important book. This is why a lot of people have been writing about it, have been thinking about it, have been commenting on it, because it's a real radical idea that connects how we live in our Western world to a possible imbalance in our brain hemispheres. And, you know, I think that comes, that comes through in the documentary, of course, about that imbalance. Now, as you may be aware, this station is an Indigenous-based radio station. Yes. Which means that uh, a number of us here uh, are of Indigenous heritage. And... Um, you know, I I did not get to see the entire documentary, but I, I got to see just a little over half of it. And then I started skimming through because I wanted to see what else was going to be brought through to this. Because Yes. And I was happy to see to the, near the end of the film that he does bring in uh, a Blackfoot person and talks with him about the Indigenous perspective. And uh, this is the one thing that, that I thought about as I was watching this the whole time was that that left brain, right brain balance or imbalance, that indigenous people people have always had that right brain forward thinking or universal idea of it's not just this planet that is here for us to consume and, and do with what we will. It is part of us. We have to think of the planet as part of our whole. And he does talk about that. And so I, I find it really interesting in what he says about if you look around, you know, the way our buildings and, and the way we lay out things, and it's all very 
uh, left brain sort of structured in terms of the values that we have brought forward, as, as you're mentioning. And I think that's really interesting in that, in that process. Um, I got a little upset because I thought, yeah, you know, it's too bad we, more indigenous thinking hasn't been allowed to be brought into this or that dominance, as you say, an, an imbalance that has happened. Um, so I think it's, it's a very, very good eye-opener for people to, to, as you say, it's important that people should see this. And I'm also happy to see that he brought something else into the film, something that I thought about as I was watching it. And I went, oh, you know who he should have in this? It's my stroke of insight, <laughs> which was the oh, TED yes. Talk. And, and the Jill... Jill Bolte-Taylor. Yes. Yes, because she was the person... I mean, you know, we spend a fair amount of time in the film looking at the qualities of the left hemisphere in in terms of, you know, how did we get here? Mm. How did we get to this point where we are being dominated by left hemisphere values? And and perhaps I should clarify for your uh, listeners um, what we mean by left and right hemisphere values. Sure. Because... What the scientist tells us to do is to forget about all of the traditional misconceptions about all of the pop psychology that's been attached to, you know, are mm. you left brain? Are you right, <laughs> right. brain? Right. He said, forget about all that. He right. says, what we know now from neuroimaging and from studying, especially stroke patients, where mm-hmm. we can really tell what once, if we've had a full, full, let's say, left hemisphere stroke or right hemisphere stroke, people's personalities will often change, and that gives us insight into what is the purpose of that hemisphere Mm. versus, you know, what is the purpose of the left hemisphere versus the purpose of the right. And it's got nothing to do with what each one does. They both do everything. They're both involved with mathematics, creativity, art, engineering. You need both. The big difference is what we know today is that they look at the world in very different ways. Mm-hmm. And you've got that, that, that membrane, the corpus callosum, that separates both hemispheres so that one does not interfere with the other, so that there is a, a good exchange. But when one has to do a task, the other one doesn't start meddling. Mm. So the left hemisphere is, sees the world in a very narrow, focused way. This is the brain of bureaucracy. It's the brain of systems. This is your uh, skill-building brain. So if a skater is out on the ice, she turns to the left hemisphere, and that's where her practice occurs. Skill, 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 f- physical skill. It, is, it has made us very wealthy and powerful because it is able to focus on a single task. And it is able to do it very well. And so it's basically what has allowed us to become G7 countries. Now, the problem with it is, is that that hemisphere, for example, if you've had a right hemisphere stroke and you're only left with the left hemisphere, it has difficulty with human relationships. It has difficulty reading faces. It has difficulty with uh, body language. It cannot read nonverbal cues. Answers have got to be black and white. It cannot deal with ambiguity. 
of any kind. And it generally takes its, its instructions from the right hemisphere, which is the master mm. of the brain. Mm. The right hemisphere sees the whole picture. It sees a global picture of the world. It understands human communication. It understands body language. It's the hemisphere of God instinct. Mm. It's wisdom. Mm. It tells you when you're in danger. Mm. So an example of someone who had a full right hemisphere stroke and she was just left with her hemisphere was this woman that I read about who owned a business and she was very successful and wealthy. All of a sudden with that right hemisphere stroke, she could still speak and she could still interact with the world with her left hemisphere, but she had lost her judgment. Mm. She had lost her gut instinct mm. and she became a mark. So people were able to take unfair advantage of her. Right. So within two years, someone had bilked her out of a million dollars because someone asked her for money. She kept writing checks. Her family could not interfere because they couldn't get her oh. assessed as, yeah. as um, not... Not fit or... Not exactly. Yeah. So it was only after years of therapy that she was able to get some of this back. Mm. So this is uh, an extreme example mm -hmm. of what happens. But the film is about, are we dealing with our problems in a left hemisphere way? Are we silencing that right hemisphere? Right. So whether it's the economic crash, whether it's issues about the environment or mental illness, are we looking at these problems in a very piecemeal way where we're dealing with, we're trying to solve them with algorithms instead of an embodied holistic mm. way? If Someone is being interviewed for a job. There's all sorts of programs where you follow an algorithm to find right. how to hire the best person mm. for your company. And we're losing that, getting a person across from us and just talking to them as a human being. We're losing that. So what the right hemisphere does, it keeps us in the real world. It keeps us interacting with nature, mm. interacting with other people. And, and it understands music, it understands poetry, it understands implicit meaning, mm. things that aren't spelled out. Right, emotion. Exactly. So if we look at some of these problems, for example, the economic crash. In the film, we look at the fact that stockbrokers in the U.S. were making a lot of money on these subprime mortgage mm -hmm. bundles. And all of a sudden, these bundles were being sold across the pond to Deutsche Bank. And all of a sudden, it caused a crash in Denmark or one of the Scandinavian countries. So we're talking about algorithms that had been used to figure out how to sell these subprime mm. packages. But Analysts themselves knew that there was something wrong with these packages, but heck, it was like a train that was leaving that station. They were making a lot of money. They weren't going to stop it. Mm. So what economists have said, and some of these people are in our film, what they say is that there's got to be a more sustainable way to run the economy. But it's bigger than that, right? Obviously, yes, because of course. what it really, what he, I think he's he's pointing out is that it's it's not just looking at the black and white. It's not just reading it as an algorithm. It's bringing in that right side. It's exactly. bringing back in 
the judgment, which was lost to greed, you might say, exactly. which overpowered and took over over that side of the the, the judgment yes. um, that just went out the, the door uh, for for the making of uh, a, a financial gain. Yes. And that blinded people to the better judgment, which would go back to the right side of the brain, as we were talking about, to say, exactly. hey, stand back and look at this. Is this the best choice for you? And is the best choice if we look at the larger picture for right. the economy, for the country, for the globe, et cetera, et cetera? Is that exactly? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, what are what are you hoping that people will take out of this film? I'm hoping that people will look at their brains in a very different way and really become much more aware of how they're using their brain and become more aware of of possibly how left hemisphere thinking is affecting not their own lives, but also society at, at large. Mm. I, I'm, I had a thought as you were talking there, so I, I have a bit yes. of a smile on my face because I thought, gee, are we discussing this in a very left brain thinking manner? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, no, I think we're being open here. I think because the right hemisphere can deal with ambiguity, it can actually handle two opposite thoughts. Mm. It's comfortable with that, mm-hmm. but the left hemisphere is not. The left hemisphere has got to be black or white. Mm-hmm. It needs that answer. And it, it, the other thing is, which I think we're seeing a lot in our society, and that is the left hemisphere cannot deal with context. And I think the media especially, what I've been observing over a number of years, is that the media will report the news without context and, sure. and often will suppress parts of a story that they consider uncomfortable or not to their ideological bent. Or that doesn't fit into the angle of the story that they're trying to get out at that moment in time. Exactly. Or, and because they only have a minute and a half or maybe exactly. two minutes to get this yeah. headline out there. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, somewhere near the end of the film, there's a gentleman who's speaking and he he addresses this whole idea about how do we or what we do with this information. Are we able to turn things around? Are we able to do this? And I and I thought that was a very sort of uh, a typical answer, I guess, you know, because mm-hmm. I thought if we're trying to make changes, if we have to do this, are we going to, to rely back on those same old thoughts that we've had? How do we, are we going to do this uh, without saying this is what we have to do? And, and it's, almost, it's almost like at that point now where we do have to say, we have to do this. This is what we have to do. We have to make this change. Um, in order for our for humanity to to survive, we're getting to that point where we have abused the planet so much with whether it be left right thinking or or this dominant left side thinking that uh, that, that, that the professor points out. And um, I'm I'm just wondering, you've had I'm sure you've had a chance to speak with him and, and talk with him about these things. Yes. What would you say is his takeaway? What what would he like people to learn from this? He would like people to start thinking in a different way, in a less exploitive way. Mm. So if we look at the environmental problems Mm. that we're facing, what he would like us to do is have an open, honest dialogue about how we can respect our resources. To a certain extent, we need to exploit our resources, but we have to look at these resources as part of us. 
We are not apart from that tree. We are not apart from that lake. And Canada especially is a country that is extremely rich in resources. To a certain extent, we may need to build pipelines, but how do we do that? How do we have a conversation about doing that in the most environmentally sustainable way possible? Mm. It's not either or. It should not just be got to build that pipeline at any cost. And it shouldn't be, no, you can't build that pipeline at all because we want this forest. It has to be a very grown-up conversation in a very holistic manner of discussing issues. And I think one of the parts of the film that I think may resonate with our audience is the polarization of speech, not just in the U.S., but also in Canada. Mm. You have a lot of very ideological speech on both sides. Mm. And we need to get more to a center. We need to get more, we need to get people listening to each other and leaving their ideology, Mm. letting it go and really having an honest conversation. I see in politically correct speech, that's a very left hemisphere thing. These are things that you can't say. You can't talk about these things. You can't say these things. Mm. So um, we, we are looking at um, hyperbolic language now. Just mm. the, like the, the word survivor, for example, is being used for anything from someone who has survived a genocide. We used to use it in a very careful way mm. to someone who survived an unwanted pat on their rear end. Mm. So we're we're looking at language that is being hyperbolized, mm. and I think that is part of this conversation. Mm-hmm. I hear what you're saying. Uh, it's interesting that you you chose the words earlier, and, and just in terms of how we deal with issues that you're now talking about, that you bring up as a point of example. For instance, like the pipeline, and you say, it, it, you know, we can't separate ourselves from that tree or that lake, which again is very indigenous thinking. Yes, <laughs> and, yes. And, and it's unfortunate that that kind of, I'm, I'm going to use the word mature, mature yes. thinking. Exactly. It is, it's unfortunate that mature thinking hasn't been allowed to be used or brought forward. And that left brain, uh, you know, kind of thinking of, of me or separated from the whole kind of thinking hasn't allowed that to be part of the conversation. Maybe we're going to get there shortly. I hope we do. I hope so. Uh, because it is, I believe, part of our, of our sustainability and part of our ability to survive as, as people if we, if we can find the way to get there, and I sure hope we do. Um, there's something else I thought about um, just before uh, you, 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 I joined you with this conversation. Have you seen the film Quayana Scotsi? Are you familiar with that? I've movie? seen parts of it. I've seen parts of it, and we tried to use some of the scenes oh, in you our did, film. Eh? Yes, and they said no. Hmm. <laughs> well, it's interesting because, uh, as you know, Koyaanisqatsi is the the Hopi word for yes. life out of balance. No, and, I didn't know that. And if you watch the movie, yes, which is the only word in the entire film, with music by Philip Glass, it's yes. a very powerful film, yes. uh, which actually uh, was inspirational to many. Uh, other film uh, um, uh, styles that were used, I think specifically in commercials and those kind of things, where you had a lot of fast motion and and, uh, light uh, uh, things happening. Uh, If you watch that film, uh, you will see why and how they put it together the way they did and how it translates very well to today's world. 
and I think in part it translates, and it made me think of that because some yes. of the imagery that you used in this film uh, made me think of the same kind of thing. That is terrific. We uh, we had actually asked them if we could use some mm-hmm. of their images. I mean, credited, of course, mm-hmm. and and um, no. <laughs> Well, it is a, it's a conversation that uh, you will be able to attend if you are interested in going to see The Divided Brain, which makes its Canadian premiere next Tuesday, April 9th at 7 p.m. at Toronto's Isabel Bader Theatre. And afterwards, there will be a panel uh, to discuss this. And I understand that the, from speaking with you that um, uh, Dr. Ian McGilchrist will be actually be taking part in that from uh, Skype or... from Yes, it will be a, a uh, UK link. Mm. And uh, we also have Dr. Norman Doidge, who right. is part of the panel. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, Dr. Jo- Dr. Doidge uh, is very popular in Canada and the U.S. He's made a number of series, and he is the best-selling author of The Brain That Changes Itself. He knows Ian's work, mm. and, and so um, he's a natural for the, for the panel. And also we have Dr. Jordan Peterson joining us, uh, who needs no introduction. And uh, Dr. Peterson um, interviewed Ian in London when he was on his uh, mm. book tour, so he mm-hmm. knows Ian's work. And luckily, both Dr. Peterson and Dr. Doidge live in Toronto. <laughs> We're available. <laughs> By the way, your listeners can get tickets at uh, thedividedbrain.com. Excellent. Thedividedbrain.com. Check that out if you're interested in going. I recommend it. It's a very interesting uh, documentary uh, which talks about many fascinating ideas, but basically it, it brings it down to uh, perhaps a, a, a simple way in some ways for us to think about how we are moving forward, why we are doing the things we are doing as people, individuals, countries, uh, nations, um, and especially in the Western world, and how we got here. Exactly. Um, it's all about how we got here. Um, and, and, and shutting that voice down that, that we might need to be able to be shouting at us right now. Uh, Thank you. Anything else you would like to add just before our time is up? It's been great having you here today. Thank you very much. No, it's been a pleasure uh, being here. The uh, Blackfoot mm. um, member, Dr. Leroy Little Bear, he works out of the University of Lethbridge in, in, in Alberta. And I must say, when I saw that scene, I also had a revelation because mm. as I was growing up, I really didn't think I was part of, of nature. I mm. always saw nature as something separate. And I also saw wildlife as something separate. Mm. And I wasn't that comfortable. Mm going into the woods mm. or being in nature. I wanted right. to run away. Wow. You know, and yet, as I was working on this film, and when I saw the rushes from, from Dr. Little Bear, I had that stroke of insight. And now I go out of my way to go for a walk in the woods. You know, I'd always made fun of people who were, I thought were tree huggers. Oh, there goes a tree hugger. <laughs> and yet I had an impulse. I had an impulse not that long ago to go and put my arms around a tree. I'd never, I mean, I'm, I'm shocked that I'm actually saying this on radio. But <laughs> <laughs> Listen, there's but nothing to be ashamed of. It's helped me, but it's helped me uh, when, when uh, Leroy Little Bear was talking about 
the fact that his relations, mm-hmm. when he talks about his relations, mm-hmm. and when I think of my relations, I think of my mom, my dad, mm-hmm. you know, and my family. Mm-hmm. But his relations are that tree, that creek, that stream, the sky, the animals. And that was a huge switch on for mm-hmm. me. Yes. Uh, and it's not just for him. It's the thinking of indigenous people. Then we, Yes, know, of so course. Yes. When, when, you know, he says, oh, it, it's sort of a given that we are we are relations humans, yes. but it's extending that to say yes. all our relations yes. and including everything because we are we come from here it is part of us if we ignore um, the the elements that keep us alive we end up with where we are i guess you might exactly say. and and exactly. you know what's interesting i have to ask you did you feel good when you hugged the tree i did see i did see yeah, it, it made me feel, because what it is, is these are sources of life, and I mm. never thought of them as sources of life. Mm. I thought of them more as not inanimate objects, but something in between my life form mm. and and a chair. Mm. I mean, I knew that, you wow. know, plants have life, and trees have life, and sure. rivers have life, but I didn't think of them at all as an extension of me, or that I was part of this. And mm. now, And now I've had that, yeah, I've had that revelation. Well, that's great. Congratulations. And Thank you. <laughs> and perhaps you can share that on Tuesday, April 9th, at the uh, Toronto premiere of The Divided Brain at the Isabel Bader Theatre. Um, I want to thank Vanessa Dillon for uh, coming on the show today and taking part and discussing this with us. a fascinating idea, a fascinating film. And uh, I encourage people to go out and explore this and look at it because it is about the brain, but it is also about humanity at the same time and how, as we move forward. So um, I want to just say uh, miigwech and thank you for, for joining us today on Moment of Truth. And um, lastly, to all our relations. Thank you, David. It's been a, a pleasure being here. Okay, thanks again. Maybe we can have you back again another time. I'd love to. And we're back on Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. I would like to thank Vanessa once again for coming in. And uh, we have this special message to bring forward to you. It has been, it's a tragedy that spoke to the very heart of what it is to be Canadian. A bus carrying a junior hockey team in rural Saskatchewan involved in a fatal collision with a semi-trailer. It was every hockey parent's worst nightmare and has led to calls to make highways safer. Canadian press reporter Bill Graveland takes a look back at the year since the deadly crash and how families are still struggling to cope. High above the rural intersection north of Tisdale, Saskatchewan, there was devastation below. A bus carrying the Humboldt Broncos junior hockey team and a semi-truck that roared into its path were shattered into pieces. A full load of peat moss was spread for hundreds of meters. Police and emergency crews remain on the scene of a deadly crash between a transport truck and a bus carrying a junior hockey team northeast of Saskatoon. Our thoughts and prayers are with everyone impacted by this terrible event. Family of the injured and deceased, friends, the communities of Humboldt and Nipawin, and the Humboldt Broncos organization. It's difficult to put into words the sorrow that one feels in a situation like this. In total, 16 people died, including 10 players, and 13 others were injured. Miles Shemlansky heard the bus go by his house a half kilometer away and received a frantic call from his son Nick, who'd escaped uninjured. So we just jumped in our car and we got here and helped out as much as we could. I don't know how to, how, 
how to explain it even as a nightmare because it's past a nightmare because it's when you come up you've seen that bus and you didn't know it was a bus and you just knew like oh my god there's you're a fortunate guy because and at that point i hadn't seen any other hockey player standing or anybody What followed were memorials, funerals, and an outpouring of grief across the country. The investigation took months before RCMP finally charged the driver of the truck in July. Mr. Sidhu was arrested without incident at his Calgary residence and currently faces the following charges. 16 counts of dangerous operation of a motor vehicle causing death. 13 counts of dangerous operation of a motor vehicle causing bodily injury. Lawyer Mark Braveford entered 29 guilty pleas on behalf of Jaskarat Singh Sidhu in January. They wanted the families to know that he's devastated by uh, the grief that he's caused them and uh, he's overwhelmed by the expressions of sympathy uh, and kindness that some of the families and players have uh, expressed to him in spite of the fact that their grief is entirely his fault and he's very sorry about that. The pleas were a relief for Scott Thomas, whose son Evan died in the crash. To hear him use his own words to plead guilty is a powerful, powerful second for sure. To uh, acknowledge what we felt right from the start, that uh, he was responsible for that accident scene, and now we can move forward with the, the next part of this. Sidhu publicly apologized to the families at his sentencing hearing. A month later, almost a full year after the accident, he was sentenced to eight years in prison. But Raylene Harold, whose son Adam was killed, felt little comfort. Well, for me, it doesn't change anything. It's, I mean, I guess for him it does, but for us, our life doesn't change. Adam doesn't come back. Um, it certainly isn't closure. Sidhu will likely be deported back to India once his sentence is served. Many of the families, including former NHL player Chris Joseph, whose son Jackson died, are lobbying for future laws requiring seatbelts on buses and better training for truck drivers. We are all about trying to make the road safer now. We, we're not getting Jackson back, um, so we want to create change. And she was very firm, and she did speak about how her sentencing today is going to uh, help promote some change and so for that we're grateful um, yeah so that's what we will be focusing on from now on going forward because uh, that's all we have as far as as this goes assistant coach mark cross died that day his father brad hopes that their deaths aren't in vain we want to see driving attitudes change should the accident have happened absolutely not but it did. And maybe we can learn something from that. I hope so. A memorial has continued to grow at the site of the crash, and a steady stream of trucks still continue to roar by. But the memorial, the anniversary, and the year ahead are going to be difficult for Russ Harold. Just another another dead loss of, of emptiness, you know, devastation, and real, you know, realizing uh, the future, what's lost an empty future there. Bill Graveland, The Canadian Press, Melford, Saskatchewan. Uh, difficult to hear those words and to remember that uh, tragic event, but one worth remembering, of course. 
I'm David Moses. Thanks for listening to Moment of Truth. And uh, please be listening next time on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.